This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm your host, Andy Hoover, Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. Today, we're talking about mail delivery, or lack thereof, to Pennsylvania state prisons. And you'll hear from two people who have first-person understandings of the big changes to the mail delivery policies at the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. The first is Vic Valchek, legal director for the ACLU of PA. ACLU PA recently filed two federal lawsuits against the DOC over its new policy of copying and storing legal mail between attorneys and their clients in DOC facilities. We're joined in that litigation by the Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project, the Abolitionist Law Center, the Amistad Law Project, and the law firm of Schneider, Harrison, Siegel, and Lewis. In this discussion, Vic talks about why we filed the lawsuits and why confidentiality between an attorney and their client is so critical. And you definitely want to stick around for our second interview. Salim Holbrook offers a perspective that you don't often hear in mainstream media, the perspective of someone who has been incarcerated and who is now lifting up the voices of those who are still inside. And at the end of today's episode, I'll share a few thoughts about a community that has long stood up for civil liberties and that needs us to stand with them now. Here we go. So Vic, let's start with what we're challenging with this lawsuit. Whenever the ACLU files a lawsuit, it's always because the, either the government has done something it shouldn't or the government is not doing something that it should be doing. Um, describe the policy of the Department of Corrections that is so problematic here. Right. So the problem here is that the government is doing something it shouldn't, which is uh, copying prisoners' legal mail and storing it. So let me unpack that just a little bit. So uh, obviously prisoners don't have the same constitutional rights as people who are not imprisoned, right? You know, you, you, you lose some of your, your rights simply by virtue of being detained. I mean, you lose your right to liberty, uh, if nothing else. But, but it's well known and well established that prisoners do not lose all of their constitutional rights. And among the most important and the ones most safe, carefully guarded by the courts is the right of communication. Right, so to mail, to getting publications and things like that. And, and the new DOC policy does restrict those, which, you know, we think that's problematic. Um, but what we're focusing on in this lawsuit is just legal mail, which is a subset of sort of the bigger realm of, of communications. And courts have guarded legal mail with sort of um, particular intensity uh, just because um, it is vitally important that lawyers are able to speak confidentially with their clients uh, and and have discussions that are not going to be open to others, and especially in the prison context where some of these lawsuits, and certainly the ones the ACLU gets involved in, um, are suing 
the prisons and right. suing prison officials. And so having having those prison officials read confidential communications between the attorney and the client is a real problem. So the average person knows that the confidentiality between uh, lawyers and clients is uh, is a thing and it's a bedrock of the justice system. Um, but I, when, when this lawsuit came up, I had to ask you specifically, why is this a First Amendment issue? Can you tell us the specifics about what part of the law is being violated here. Yeah, so it it is an interference with the ability of the lawyer and the client to communicate, right? So that's an exchange of information which is covered by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Um, uh, and, 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 I, and I think what's, what's important for people to understand is when, when you say that attorney-client confidentiality is the bedrock, just how important that is. Uh, you know, when, when I sit down with a client, uh, I will say to him or her, look, I need to know everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, not because I'm going to disclose the bad and the ugly, but I need to know what's there in order to figure out how to craft the best possible defense or offense or whatever side I happen to be working on. Um, and on the on the flip side, right, when I'm communicating with the client, look, I, I need to feel comfortable saying, look, you're you're guilty as hell. Uh, right. So you're going to go to prison and we got to figure out, you know, whether we can keep it to X years instead of, you know, three X years. Right. And, and if you think about it, you just you can't have those kind of open and honest uh, communications unless you are guaranteed confidentiality. And the way that the DOC has changed their legal mail handling procedures now really jeopardizes that confidentiality. And without that confidentiality, lawyers just don't think they are able to continue to communicate with their clients in a way that's that's ethical and required by the rules of professional responsibility. So the DOC's justification for this is that they're trying to stop drugs from coming into the prisons. And we'll get to the credibility of that claim in a moment. But um, it's not that's not surprising that the department would want to check mail for contraband. Why was the DOC's old way of checking legal mail not a violation of attorney client privilege? Right. So uh, you're right. Uh, I mean, uh, look, pr prisons are are secure, supposed to be secure institutions. Uh, the prison has to be able to take steps to keep out uh, not just uh, contraband like like drugs, but keep out weapons. Uh, they have to be able to foil escape plans. And so it's well established that for most male uh, prison officials are able not only to open it, uh, but to actually read it just to make sure, for instance, that there's not some escape plan being hatched in there. Because of the importance of attorney-client confidentiality, the courts have erected special protections around legal mail. And the, the, the really the most important one is that when when prisons prison officials open legal mail it has to be done in the presence of the prisoner and the reason they do that is so that the prisoner can be there to verify 
that the officials are not reading the legal mail because that attorney-client confidentiality is so important. So, so the rule is for legal mail can only be opened in front of the uh, prisoner and then given to the prisoner. Uh, all other mail can be opened outside the uh, presence of the prisoner and can be read. The problem with the new system is that now when the mail comes in, they will still open it in front of the prison prisoner, but they are now going to make a copy of that mail and give the copy to the prisoner and then store the original for 45 days. Uh, and uh, as, as we look at both the act of having to photocopy something, you know, you take out the staples, you got to remove the binding, you have a, a jam in the copier, just, you know, just that process for anybody who's ever had to do a lot of photocopying in their life knows that it is not seamless, that there are ample opportunities either for deliberate or inadvertent reading of the material that's there. And then you're going to have a period where the original is outside the presence of the prisoner and in the custody of the DOC, which in some cases is going to be a defendant in a, in a lawsuit brought by the prisoner. And that simply is just insufficiently um, confidential. There's, there's just no guarantee of confidentiality. And the ACLU, other organizations, many federal public defender offices have taken the position that under those circumstances, as a matter of professional responsibility and ethics where we have an obligation to make sure that we are using channels of communication that are secure and maintain confidentiality, that we can no longer rely on the mail uh, uh, in corresponding with our DOC clients. So we filed the lawsuit, and not surprisingly, the department has responded. Um, and I, frankly, was stunned when I read that the DOC secretary called this policy a preemptive move. It seems like he's saying that that word preemptive really implies that, you know, contraband has not been, that really hasn't been an issue, that contraband has been coming in through legal mail, but they're implementing the policy anyway, so it doesn't become an issue. And I just think back to any number of lawsuits we've had, uh, like voter ID immediately comes to mind, where the Commonwealth admitted they had no evidence of, of voter fraud, but they were going to do this anyway. Um, in doing that, it, you know, the DOC is severely compromising the rights of attorneys and prisoners. What was your reaction when you heard that from the secretary? Yeah, I, 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 it's probably not the uh, the best admission for, for him to have made, and it's certainly something that we will be focusing on when we get into into discovery. But uh, yeah, look, there, there's there's drugs in prisons. There's there have always been drugs in prisons, uh, and and our point has been that uh, legal mail is not one of the chief conduits of contraband getting in. We've had discussions with the lawyers. They have acknowledged that legal mail is not a major source of, uh, of the contraband coming in. To the extent that it is even a tiny problem, that's one of the DOC's own making that they can fix, and it relates to how they sort of provide 
control numbers to attorneys to make sure that um, it really is legal mail and how they haven't really done a, a great job in, in administering that process. Uh, but given that legal mail is not a substantial source of the contraband, makes it that much more difficult to justify any kind of change in the process that's going to interfere with attorneys being able to communicate with their clients and vice versa. So you've described the legal mail issue at the state prisons as urgent. We know that lawyers have stopped sending mail to their clients, including the plaintiffs um, in this lawsuit. Um, what are we asking the court to do to solve this, and what kind of timeline are you hoping to be on? Right. So, uh, yes, this this is urgent because, as I mentioned a moment ago, not only we, but, but the other groups that have joined in, in the lawsuits that we filed um, have been advised by our ethics council that um, we simply cannot, as a matter of, of attorney professional responsibility, use the mails. And that you know, that makes it really hard to communicate with your clients. I, mean, I have clients that I'm representing in court, in ongoing court cases that are housed, for instance, at SCI Phoenix, which is in Montgomery County outside Philadelphia. It's about a five-hour drive for me, which is going to kill a whole day or, or two days to go there and back as opposed to just sending something by the mail. Uh, and so this really is causing chaos for lawyers and their clients all across the Commonwealth. And it, and it Frankly, it just undermines the whole administration of justice. Um, we have filed for what's known as a preliminary injunction. So you often hear the phrase, the wheels of justice grind slowly, uh, and that, that is certainly true. But courts have the ability to move things along much more quickly. Uh, ACLU is pretty good at uh, helping courts do that. Um, so we filed this motion where we want to get a little bit of information from the government through the process known as discovery. Uh, and we're hoping to get a hearing by sometime in early to mid-December uh, and then be able to get a decision from the court shortly thereafter. What we're asking the court to do is to say that this new process is unconstitutional, that it interferes with attorney-client communication in violation of the First Amendment, and uh, uh, order that the DOC go back to the old way of handling legal mail, which does not involve making a copy of the correspondence. Well, Vic, I know that there's a lot of interest in this case, particularly in the legal community, um, and a lot of folks appreciate the work that you're doing and our allies are doing on this, and thanks for taking the time to describe the lawsuit. You bet. Anytime. Uh, stay tuned. This this is an important case, and I think the fact that this is, that as far as we can tell, Pennsylvania is the only state in the country that has gone to this process of copying legal mail makes it even more important that we sort of nip it in the bud before it, it takes root all across the country. Great. Thanks, Vic. All right. Take care, Andy. There's another part to the story about the new restrictions at the Department of Corrections that goes beyond legal mail. The DOC's policies also require all mail to prisoners to be sent to Florida to a third-party contractor where the mail is then scanned. A copy is sent to the prisoner and the prisoner never sees the original. 
The DOC has also implemented new restrictions on visitation and, until a week ago, on the ability of prisoners to obtain books. That's why I asked Salim Holbrook to join me for this discussion. Salim is an organizer for the Abolitionist Law Center and is a co-founder of the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration. Salim has also been incarcerated, so he understands the importance of this issue in a very personal way. There is some news since Salim and I talked. We recorded this conversation on the morning of November 1st. A few hours later, the DOC announced that it was lifting its restrictions on books. Book donation organizations will again be able to send books to prisoners. Individuals can order books for prisoners via publishers, bookstores, and online retailers. And prisoners can order books through a catalog. Although the lifting of the restrictions makes that part of the conversation with Salim outdated, it's still important for you to hear him talk about the importance of books in the daily life of someone who is incarcerated. Salim, before we talk about the issue with mail at the state prisons, I want to first ask you about CADB, the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration. Um, you are a co-founder of CADB. Tell us about that. What is CADB's origin story? So the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration, CADB, um, was started close to three, four years ago, and it's a coalition comprised of four prisoner advocacy groups. The Human Rights Coalition, Decarcerate PA, Fight for Lifers Inc., and Right to Redemption. All of these organizations got together and decided to uh, initiate a campaign to end death by incarceration in Pennsylvania. All of these organizations are led by impacted people, particularly by family members of prisoners serving death by incarceration sentences. And death by incarceration, we talked about this on our last episode. Um, folks commonly know that as life without parole, but um, death by incarceration, I think, is a, a very effective way of um, talking about that particular issue because it really says what it is. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, 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 we felt very, uh, uh, from the beginning, we felt as though it was very important to emphasize that we have to change the narrative when it comes to a lot of the terminology surrounding criminal justice and also um, criminal sentencing. So death by incarceration is definitely a deliberate term we use. It's to change the narrative. Um, sentencing someone to life without parole is sentencing, sentencing them to death by incarceration. So we wanted to really put that out front and, and change the narrative when it comes to that language. So obviously, um, changing that particular sentence is, is the mission of, of the coalition. Um, from what I've observed, it seems like CADB is active on several issues right now. What are the organization's priorities at the moment? So our priorities right now are to get a bill passed for lifers that would give lifers in Pennsylvania an opportunity at parole. So a lot of our organizing right now is around Senator Sharif Street. Uh, Senate Bill 942, um, which is scheduled to be reintroduced in next session. I, I believe that the bill number will change, but right now that's one of our main priorities. And we're also organizing around House Bill 
HB 135 introduced by Jason Dawkins. Um, both of those are our legislative priorities right now. Um, we, we are organizing statewide with chapters in Philadelphia, Delaware County, Allegheny County, Reading, Lancaster, and Harrisburg. And we're, at, and we're expanding to the other counties as more people are getting involved in this campaign. Um, in addition to our legislative priorities, recently, because our coalition is composed primarily of families of prisoners, who are, who are leading this fight. The enactment of the new DOC policies, which restrict mail and visiting, really is something that resonated with our membership. So as a result of those policies, um, which pretty much create roadblocks between families building relationship with their loved ones on the inside, we've been doing a lot of advocacy urging Governor Wolf and the DOC to rescind those policies. We're doing advocacy through protests. And as you know, um, the Abolitionist Law Center and Amistad Law Project are also co-counsel on the, on the uh, lawsuit filed, filed against the DOC as a result of these policies. Yeah, and you're also an organizer with the Abolitionist Law Center. I mean, based on what you just described, I assume a lot of that work um, overlaps with what CADB is doing. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's all interconnected. Uh, CABBY, one of the things that we've seen with the growth, growth of CABBY is the growth of not only its membership, but also of the growth of the family members who are leading this fight. So now, although CABBY is primarily aimed at abolishing death by incarceration, life without parole sentences, family members, through their initiative, have said, look, we have to get involved in other battles dealing with mass incarceration. So now it's not uncommon to see CADBY at, like, as I said, leading rallies against the DOC policy, but also on the front line of ending cash bail, on the front line of closing Burke's prison. So we've been intersecting, intersecting with a lot of different organizations fighting for social justice in Pennsylvania. So let's talk about the prison mail issue. Uh, our legal director has explained the issue specifically in regards to legal mail, so I'm hoping that you can talk uh, about the broader issue with the DOC's new mail policy beyond legal mail. Um, so mail to prisoners is being sent to a third-party contractor in Florida. Uh, it's then scanned, and a copy is sent to the prisoner while the contractor keeps the original. Now, as I've, as I've read about this, you know, I'm struck by how the DOC's new policy really seems to depersonalize the contact uh, that people inside have with people outside who are contacting them. Um, I keep coming back to the person quoted in the Philadelphia Inquirer who talks about getting a card from their kid. You know, they get a photocopy of a card from their child. Uh, you've, been incarcer you've been incarcerated. Talk about, about how important personal mail is for someone in prison. Um, oh man, listen, that is your, pretty much your, your, your lifeline to the street. Um, I mean, look, there's, there's few things more personal that, than a letter, than a, than a handwritten letter sent to you. Um, these policies, you personalize that because you not, not only are you getting a photocopy of a letter that your family member wrote, but also it's just the lag time 
right now, you know, guys are telling me that it's taking a week or two weeks for them to get one letter that was sent. Also, the quality of the photocopying, it's, it's grainy. It's, it's, it's just such a – the way it's done is pretty much just like a rush job that the people doing it just really have no care for the families or the recipients of these letters. For me personally, I mean, I'm really fortunate that I'm out now because this policy would have really impacted me because, as I said, mail was my SOS to the world. Um, it was my lifeline to not only my family, but also to my community. And as a writer in prison, I mean, I couldn't imagine how difficult it would be right now for me to be able to maintain the correspondence I had with people, to be able to write about the experiences that I was suffering in prison, about the injustices of life without parole sentences on children, um, under these new type of policy restrictions. I mean, I, a lot of my support, I would say 90% of the support I had that, that resulted in my freedom was done through mail. So for me, this resonates deeply. Um, in, in terms of family members, I mean, for them, they're, 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 they're heartbroken. They're, 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 they're struck. I think they're impacted more than prisoners by this, and that's why we're seeing such and upsurge in people on the outside who are who, who are really upset about this. Because also, look, family members are not stupid. They are saying, why are we sending our mail to a third-party company in Florida? We're giving them $15 million to do this. You know, they, they know that this is about money. This is about contracting centers. And they also know that the rationale used to justify these restrictions basically was a false narrative put out by the DOC. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you're hearing from folks in the prisons and from their families. Um, you mentioned that, at, at the very least, one of the big problems is delay in, in the receiving the mail. Um, can, you, can you say a little more about what you're hearing from folks, both from um, people who are inside and family members? So... A lot of anger was, is still directed at the book restrictions. Um, and that is something that there's ongoing talk with the DOC about whether or not they would rescind it. You know, we're hearing, you know, mixed messages. Um, but a lot of prisoners are really upset about the book situation that they cannot order books, that it has to go through the, the Department of Corrections, that Places that donate books are now being told that you can't donate books, that you may be able to donate books in the future, that we're working on it. Um, but either way, it's pretty much almost a soft censorship that's going on within the Department of Correction when it comes to books. Um, with family members, again, I mean, just just for them, uh, you know, to not to, 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 to not be able to send your loved one a card and know that they're going to get that card you know, to, 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 to send your loved one a picture and, and to hear that the picture was photocopied black and white or the picture, the photocopy of the picture was blurry and grainy. I mean, there are so many obstacles and restrictions in place on maintaining a relationship with your loved one in prison. This was almost like piling on. Like, why are you placing more obstacles in our path? Why are you piling on more restrictions 
on something that is already hard as it is. You know what I mean? Right. So for them, this it was just really from, from a, a human standpoint crushing because, like I said, most prisoners from Philadelphia are incarcerated on the western end of the state or in the, in the central area of the state. Visiting them is very hard. So writing was one of the few ways that they could overcome that distance. Now that all these restrictions are in place with writing, it, it, it's, it's almost like families are feeling suffocated um, um, by these restrictions. And also even the visiting room restrictions. You know, some people drive six hours, seven hours to go visit their loved one and then have to sit in the visiting room where there's no refreshments, they can't get anything to drink. There's 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 a omnipresent, uh, repressive atmosphere in the visiting room where guards are hovering over tables, walking around, and people are really upset about that because they know that when it comes to drugs, the majority of the drugs that are actually sold in prison come through staff. Mm -hmm. The visiting do not bring a large amount of drugs. And drugs that come in through the visiting room are generally drugs for personal purpose. However, drugs that are sold in prison, in order to get that quantity of, of drugs in, it comes in through staff. This is something that is not unknown by the DOC. However, it is something that they did not roll out um, in, in, in their new restrictions. They did not roll out anything to address staff smuggling contraband and drugs in the prison, but they rolled out all these other restrictions dealing with, um, you know, alleged drugs being smuggled into prison. Salim, you mentioned the book policy, and as of right now, as you alluded to, it's not exactly clear what the book policy is going to be for people inside um, and their ability to get books sent to them. Um, we know that at the very least, they cannot have books sent to them at this moment. Their access is only through the libraries and um, e-readers. Um, and the DOC has said they're going to make an announcement soon about changes in a book policy. Um, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how important books are for people who are incarcerated. For someone who's never been to prison or jail, it would seem intuitive that books would be an essential form of both entertainment and intellectual stimulation. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, you just summed it up. Books are you know, a, a mental escape from prison. I mean, you could go all the way back to um, some of the most earliest writings in prison, um, you know, 100, you know, 200 years, and you will see that, you know, one a common theme through all of those writings are prisoners' access to books, prisoners' ability to read, prisoners' ability to imagine a different world, a different reality than the one they are in. And I understand there may be some people out there who say, yo, you know, that, hey, look, they put themselves in there. Certainly, um, that, that, that is true in many cases. However, to deprive someone of a book, to deprive someone of the ability to enlighten themselves, to deprive someone of the ability to access books, whether it's for entertainment to take their mind away from their bleak reality or whether it's to rehabilitate or and self empower themselves, I mean that right. I mean that is a crime right there. I feel so that that I mean that would put you on par with you know um, dictatorships in parts of the world um, that we say that couldn't happen in America. 
So, Celine, we know that the policy around legal mail falls within the scope of the lawsuit. What's the plan for advocating for rolling back the mail and book policies? How do CADB and ALC and the other prison reform groups uh, plan to push back against this? Well, there, 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 there's multiple approaches to that. Uh, one is definitely through uh, protesting these policies by family members. Uh, contacting the DOC, some family members actually, uh, at, at, you know, uh, uh, went to Governor Wolf's fundraising, went to town halls by um, DOC Secretary Wetzel and confronted them about these policies and asked them to go back. There was also outreach to legislators asking them to specifically the Senate and House Judiciary Committees, which have oversight over the Department of Corrections, asked them to investigate and to, to roll back these policies, there are people exploring and sitting down and determining whether there are First Amendment issues at play in here that a lawsuit could be filed. There are prisoners on the inside who are organizing their families to protest and call into the prison about these policies. And there's also prisoners on the inside who are taking the initiative and filing grievances and, 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 and protest to the administration. So it's a multi-pronged approach. We feel as though that we are making headway. Um, how, however, at the same time, we know this is, this is something that if it's rolled back, it'll be rolled back incrementally. Um, but it's something that I believe that, you know, families are not going to let off on, um, and the DOC and, you know, the state can expect uh, more protests, more lawsuits, um, and more people confronting them about this issue. Well, and to that point, if anyone listening to this is interested in more information about these issues or about your organizations, where can they go? So we're doing a lot of work through social media, so I would recommend people go to the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration Facebook page um, and join that. You could also go to the Human Rights Coalition Facebook page and follow um, our work on that. Um, also, you can come to a coalition to abolish death by incarceration meeting. We have monthly meetings at the Mosaic Community Church on 51st and Sampson at 6.30 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. So we would encourage people to come down there and get a part of, be, become a part of this movement seeking to end death by incarceration, but also seeking to roll back these restrictive policies that unfortunately, are impacting families more than anyone else. Well, Salim, I really appreciate your work. You know, you're giving voice to folks who often are not heard, and it's really important uh, that their stories are heard. So thanks for taking the time, and thanks for your great work. No doubt, man. Thank you, Andy. Thank you to both Salim Holbrook and Vic Volchek for their time and efforts to challenge the new restrictions at the Department of Corrections. In the show notes, you'll find links to the organizations Salim talked about and to our webpage with information about the lawsuits we filed. Finally, a few words about a community that is near and dear to our hearts here at the ACLU of Pennsylvania. People in the Jewish community in Pittsburgh and throughout the Commonwealth have long stood up for civil liberties and have stood with the ACLU. 
when we heard the news that 11 people had died at a synagogue in Pittsburgh and were targeted by a gunman simply because they were Jewish, it was devastating. Our hearts were broken. ACLUPA staff, volunteers, and supporters live and worship in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood, including some at the congregations that worship at Tree of Life. Our executive director, Reggie Shuford, sent a letter to our members in response to the shooting, and I want to read part of it. From all of us at the ACLU of Pennsylvania, our hearts are with everyone touched by this tragedy. I am reminded again of the urgency of the work that we do as advocates for civil rights now more than ever. Whether people in a community are targeted for hate crimes by private citizens or face discrimination from their own government, we know that we cannot let up. We will take time to mourn, to breathe, and to care for ourselves and others. And then we will double down on working to create the kind of country that we want. Anti-Semitism has no place in our America. A link to the entirety of that letter is available in the show notes. That closes episode 14. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. Be free.